0: Do you pray with me one more time, please? Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the truth that you have given to us about your son in this book. And God, I pray that you would be with me this morning, Lord, that you would help me to focus, that you would help these things to make sense. Father, I pray that you have guided my process getting ready for this week. And Lord, I ask that you would enable everyone in the room to hear to hear the truth that is in the text and be moved by your word to us, Father, I pray and ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. There's an old folk and I guess gospel song that originated, I think, in the early 19th century. In fact, it's so old now, it's public domain, it's no longer subject to any copyright laws, but it's called Poor Wayfaring Stranger. How many of you know that song? I am a poor wayfaring stranger. Nobody? Th- Alright, Christy, thank you. Thank you. It's like 200 years old. How have we never heard it? Not you. Not you, Christy. You're not. That's fine. That's a good start. That's a good start. I am a poor wayfaring stranger traveling, traveling through this world of woe. Not gonna sing it. But there's no sickness, toil, nor danger in that bright land to which I go. I, I found 49 different recordings of that song from 49 different artists at least that are you know documented from Johnny Cash to Burl Ives, Glenn Campbell, Emmylou Harris to Joan Baez, Natalie Merchant, Jack White. Uh, I even found a a hip-hop version. I didn't listen to it by a band called Spearhead. (laughs) Somewhere along the line that song has struck a chord with all kinds of different people. And it could be because we all feel the weight of this world in one way or another. And believers in Jesus Christ are no exception to that. What makes believers unique is not that they don't struggle. What makes believers unique is that we were never meant to feel comfortable in this world. A world where we don't have and we're never meant to find A home. So over the next couple months, we're going to make our way through first and second Peter and Jude. These three letters combine to give us hope while we're in this world in kind of three distinct ways. And first Peter, where we'll be first, his unique contribution to that is how he identifies and describes for us our identity. We are sojourners and exiles here below. We are a people for whom suffering is not a surprise. It is not a sign that God is against us. Instead, suffering is God's unique calling for us that we don't belong. That we never find a home here. We're meant to suffer. We're meant to suffer. We are not meant to belong. But in all that, we are not without hope. In fact, our hope is found in the very fact That nothing here can sustain us or give us life because everything here is passing away. So the best this world can give would be temporary or momentary anyway. Only Jesus. Only Jesus can sustain us or give us life. And as we find our identity in Him, the great sojourner and exile Himself who had no place to lay His head in this world, we find our hope. Jesus Christ gives hope to pilgrims, to poor, wayfaring strangers traveling through this world of woe, this world with no hope in it. As we open this morning, Peter revealed in this first text that God had set his mind on these believers from all eternity to save them, to keep them through trials for their salvation and for his glory. And so now may we hear and believe. God's Word together. Look at verses 1 and 2 of First Peter, chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. The fisherman named Peter, who became a disciple of Jesus, denied him three times, was restored by him, who preached at Pentecost, who led the church in Jerusalem, who was imprisoned by the emperor Nero for preaching the gospel and was crucified in Rome for his faith sometime around A.D. 67 or 68, wrote the two letters in the New Testament that bear his name. The first one, the one we're reading now, was written while Peter was in Rome, most likely around A.D. 62 or 63. And it's kind of the same as when Paul was writing to the Colossians. These are not churches that Peter personally planted, but he heard of the issues they were having, and he desired to help them. These Christians, the one he's writing to, the ones he's writing to, lived in five different Roman provinces in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, if you remember. They were mostly... If exclusively, if not exclusively, Gentiles, the very great majority of these churches would have been non-Jewish Christians and citizens of the Roman Empire. Peter had gotten word that these believers were beginning to suffer for their faith. By the time 1st Peter is written, they're not suffering from state-sponsored persecution. So they're not, when we talk about the believers in 1st Peter, this isn't something we can't relate to. It isn't state-sponsored persecution just yet. It's a different kind of persecution, but it's no less real. It's no less stark in their lives. It's the kind of persecution you would experience because you don't have hope in the same things that the people around you do, and it makes you odd to them. That general loneliness or displacement you might feel, maybe even rejection because you can't relate to them anymore, they can't relate to you What Peter implies throughout his letter is that because these believers are no longer normal inside their own culture, they're beginning to stick out and not in a good way. You know, they're not to have the same concern for uh, politics and culture that their friends and family have. They're not to rise and fall with the troubles or successes around them. They are to leave behind many of the pagan religious rituals they once participated in. They're just not normal anymore. State-sponsored persecution was going to come for them for sure, but this is how it started. A general dislike, a mistrust, not really because they quit cussing or drinking, not because they quit whatever, you know, wearing jeans or listening to bad music or something. It's 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 because they had hope now in Christ. That brings a separation from the culture that isn't about morals necessarily. They weren't confined to the same hopelessness or futility as those around them were. That's the occasion for First Peter. What was Peter's solution for what they were experiencing? And the interesting thing is he reiterates to some degree what their friends and their family were telling them. You don't belong here. That's what's wrong. This isn't going to work, but it isn't supposed to. It isn't supposed to. That's the theme overall, I think, of 1 Peter. As a people who do not belong in this world, we suffer according to God's will while entrusting our souls to Him, displaying the hope that comes only from the Gospel. That's a unique way to live, and it isn't just about... A body of information that we believe as opposed to a body of information that the world believes. The gospel gives us something deep down inside the world does not have, namely hope. Hope. He calls these believers elect exiles of the dispersion. God's people had always known from Abraham forward. God's people have always known or should know what it's like to feel or to be displaced And here Peter applies the term dispersion differently than it was usually used to refer to Jewish people scattered throughout the nations, displaced from their homeland, Israel. Here he applies dispersion to Christians dispersed throughout the world, living away from their heavenly homeland. Peter identifies them as God's chosen but displaced people. Beloved, we live all the time in an exilic state. We are always exiles. Always elect exiles according to, the text says, the foreknowledge of God. That is His specific covenantal love that He set on them before they were even born. When God's foreknowledge, it's not just telling us that God knew ahead of time. God loved ahead of time. Remember, in the very beginning, we see the word beginning to be used in a different way. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. That's intimate. God's foreknowledge is deeper than that even. It's something specific and covenantal. They're elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. They're elect exiles in the sanctification of the Spirit. So their lives, our lives, as God's chosen exiled people, take place in, within the sanctifying, setting apart work of the Holy Spirit. And we are elect exiles for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. So God's electing love is the source of our obedience to, that is our belief in, our faith in Christ. And it is the source of what makes us holy, beloved. Sprinkling with the blood of Jesus the spotless lamb that little fact will be especially important for us to know later on or we'll think we have to make ourselves holy by good behavior we'll cross that bridge when we come to it but what Peter is telling us is that we owe our full identity as these elect exiles to the mysterious and eternal plan of God our Father so may God's grace and peace be multiplied to us below this morning In our text, God's chosen people will suffer trials as exiles in this world, but they will endure. We will endure because of the great salvation He has accomplished for us through Jesus Christ. Look at verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According, so you see it again, God is doing all of it. According to His great mercy, He has caused us, to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So Peter doesn't start with their difficulties or their circumstances. He doesn't launch right into instructions. Peter starts by blessing God So He takes their eyes up, He takes them off of the world for a moment and brings us into the singing of heaven. Brings us into the music of our home. And God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is given instant and complete credit for all of it. It was according to His great mercy that we were caused to be born again. Now that follows from the fact that we are elect according to Him in verse 1. Verse 3 is a reiteration of the same idea. Of course, all He's saying is that of course we were caused to be born again. How can a person be born on their own? That's all he's getting at here. We weren't born the first time because we did something, right? What exactly did anyone in this room do to contribute to their conception? We didn't even push. Mama pushed, right? We were just born. We were made. When God uses the word seed later on in chapter 1 to talk about how we were born again, Peter is telling us that the Father produces children by His Word. By the Gospel, He brings us to life. So the focus here is deliberately on God's initiative, on God's mercy, not on our effort, not on our merit. Peter is saying, if God doesn't act, no one is going to be born again. The source of God's saving action in us is God's mercy. And that's important here with the theme of the letter. It's important because we need to know, not necessarily because we need to know the order of salvation. I don't think that's the point here, that that first God brings us to life, then we come to Him. I don't think that's really the purpose here. I think the fact that our life in Christ was given to us by God, that... Salvation is something that has mercifully happened to us, rather than something we finally got for ourselves, has huge implications for a suffering people, for an exilic people, to know that it can't ever be lost or taken away, right? Which means it has huge implications. God's loving mercy of us, before we had ever merited or done anything, His mercy for us secures us. So it has huge implications, this fact in these first verses here has huge implications for our hope. Right, The fact that that my salvation comes from God, therefore He holds it and it cannot be taken away. The the purpose of that here is for my hope. In verse 3 we've been reborn specifically into a living hope. So we've been set free from the hopeless grave into which we were born the first time. And the means of our coming to life, of our regeneration, Peter says, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's in the past. We look to Christ, our resurrection and life, for all of our hope. For all of our hope. It's fixed. The source of it is fixed. His resurrection life is the source and means of our lives. Our hope lives because our Savior lives. Believers elect exiles, that means the decisive and fundamental change that determines our destiny has already occurred in our lives. God has already done it. The ticket is punched, right? That's what He wants them to know. They're secure. We've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, a once and for all sacrifice. The redemption we possess now because He died and now lives anchors our hope. Our hope is living. It grows every day. It's a confident, eager expectation of what is to come. Our ability to arrive safely home is grounded in God's mercy and God's salvation. So the remedy for the homesick soul is found only in the resurrection of Jesus, who was the true elect exile. Nobody has ever been further from home than Jesus was. Right? And through His suffering. He has returned to heaven. He has gone back home before us. That's why the hope for those below is living, because it's a person, it's not a concept. It's a fixed reality. It's not dependent on anything. Lean into Jesus when trials increase, when suffering increases, when persecution comes. We lean into the rock. Consider Jesus and His resurrection for you. He willingly bore all of your homesickness. He willingly bore all of it in Himself. All of our sorrows. He carried all of them. Even this ache that maybe we feel now. Take heart. Your hope is alive, beloved, and it isn't dependent on you. It is fixed in the heavens at the Father's own right hand. What God has done once and for all through His Son in the past is the rock of our hope for the future. We can bless God because of our, our future salvation is certain. And in verse four, we've also been born again to an inheritance, right? So we've not just been born again to a living hope, we've been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. You see, Peter just Pile on the adjectives. Build the case for living hope. We have something far better coming for us than physical, temporal blessing. And the interesting thing here is that our inheritance is so great and so beautiful that Peter can't even tell us what it is. He can only ultimately describe to us what it isn't. You see that? It cannot be destroyed. It can't ever be polluted. And it isn't subject to decay. Like the whole creation, according to Paul in Romans 8, is in bondage to decay, our inheritance is imperishable. Given the fact that life as a human being is so temporary and transient, it's good to be reminded that we will outlive this entire creation in a place that can never be destroyed. Right? Bodies will never wither there. Brains will never deteriorate. We will never get old. It is imperishable. It cannot die, our inheritance. It is also undefiled. Can you imagine a place? Can you even imagine a world where there is no sin to defile it? No locks, no alarms, no keys. You see, that world doesn't exist now. doesn't exist now. But it will. Every woman sleeps without fear. Every man is honorable. Every child is cherished. No jails, no police, no broken homes, no painful separations, no sin. None. When you are tempted to despair, remember this, beloved. The new world that is coming for us where our inheritance is, is like that. Our inheritance is undefiled. And it is unfading. It will never be subject to decay. There will be no end to that morning. We will be made incorruptible forever restored, new, complete. That's what awaits all who know Jesus, all who come to Him and believe. All of them. We are people who have an inheritance. As elect exiles, then when you hear that word inheritance, when you hear that as an elect exile, that means what we ultimately receive from God then is coming later. Right? It comes later it's something we inherit it's not something we can see now it's it, it, it's there for us it won't ever fade because the father that promised to give us the inheritance is God so the one who has laid this up for us will never make a bad investment he will never squander it and damage it and hurt it with his own irresponsibility or silliness it will be held and kept by him forever God Almighty has it locked in his omnipotent hands It's imperishable. It cannot be tainted. It will never shrink. It's kept in heaven for us. That's where it's kept. In heaven for us. By Jesus who ascended there. And the verb there, by the way, see grammar matters. Kids, learn your grammar in school. It's critical for properly understanding the Bible. So now, you better do good in English. Right? Peter describes the security and the certainty of what is waiting for us in the strongest terms possible. The verb there kept in heaven for us, it's in the passive voice. God is doing all the keeping is what that means. God is doing the keeping. We will never be denied what God has promised us. The hands holding it are the same hands that we can't be snatched from. We have a friend in Jesus, beloved he will bear every sorrow and every struggle. He will forgive all of our sin. He is not only the author, He is the finisher of our faith. The one who began a good work in us will see it completed for us. Verse 5, Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Everything in this world, our flesh They will try with all their might to shake us loose. But God will guard us. God will guard us with His power and never let us go. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Elect exiles are people who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith. Who can overcome God? If God is the guard, who's going to break through and take us? Who's going to break through and kill our faith? Because that's the thing, that the means of God's powerful guarding is faith. You see that? It's faith. God is watching over us so that we will take hold of this inheritance. He is the one then, God is the one, that makes sure we won't nullify this salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time by making shipwreck of our faith. God guards us through faith. And what God guards, God keeps. God saves. God redeems. The goal of our new birth is final salvation in the future. Doesn't mean it's precarious. Like it does, that doesn't mean our salvation is precarious. It means it's solid and kept the future element. Doesn't mean that everything God has promised is now fragile. It simply follows the theme of the letter. That we are exiles, we're not at home, we aren't there yet, and we're waiting for something. God wants us to know that He is guarding us in the waiting. God desires that this all be obtained ultimately, finally, by faith. God loves faith. It takes all the focus off of us and puts all of it on Him. Faith is us saying, I can't, you can. And God loves it. Faith fixes the eyes elsewhere for hope, for life, for help. Right? We live the life of faith because this is the life that makes the inheritance everything God wants it to be for us when we get it. We are meant to exhale, so to speak, when we finally get home. This salvation is ready, he says. It wants to be revealed in the last time. God's guarding power over us ultimately then has eternal, not temporary goals for us. Remember that. God's ultimate goal in your life is an eternal matter, not a temporary one. That helps us gauge these lives below as elect exiles. Salvation was finished in the past by Christ finished, done, accomplished, purchased. But the realization of it for us in fullness, the consummation of it is still in the future. That's what the New Testament writers so often want us to see. Peter definitely does here. Again, it doesn't mean it's precarious. It doesn't mean you and I add to it. It means that the full realization of what we've been given, what Christ has bought for us, will not be obtained or seen until we are with Him. The focus is on future glory, which means for the believer, the best is always yet to come. Always. Verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now that's interesting. What elect exiles rejoice in is verses 3 through 5. We rejoice in our living hope for promised salvation, even though right now what we are actually experiencing in real time is the grief that comes from various trials. So our hope grows and lives, beloved, in trials. Not outside of them, in them. And Peter is saying that that's necessary. It's necessary. Our trials serve God's eternal purpose for us. Your suffering, your trials, the difficulty in our lives are not a sign of God's disapproval of you, but of His unfailing covenant love for His chosen and exiled people who are looking for a heavenly city. That's what they are. That's what they're doing. Sure, there are things we get ourselves into through poor decisions that we make. Absolutely. But when you rise above all of that in your mind, in your soul, as the Spirit guides you through the Word, you have to understand none of these things can shake you from the Father. None of these things can loosen His grip. They'll loosen yours and mine all the time. But thankfully, getting to heaven is not a matter of us holding on to God ultimately. It is a matter of Him holding on to us. And He doesn't and won't let go of you and I. He will not. We will only suffer grief for a little while. You see that. I know some of you are suffering right now. I'm suffering right now. I know some of you are suffering right now, but you realize that Earth is the shortest amount of time you and I will spend anywhere? If, 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 if we don't, if we aren't taken away in an accident or a tragedy of some kind, what do we have on average now? Between 70 and 90 years maybe, maybe a little more, a little less. You put that against the backdrop of eternity? That's perspective. It's just a little blip. James calls it a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Beloved, it's it's we grieve for just a little while. For just a little while. Simultaneous joy and grief is the norm for the Christian life. That's what we should expect. Simultaneous joy that is rooted in something bigger than us and simultaneous grief, because it is hard to live below. It's hard to be an elect exile in the world. It's hard, and it hurts. But the trials we experience now, the things just kicking us, they are not meaningless. They serve to refine and purify our faith so that we get home. Because apparently... It's necessary. Apparently we are so broken and so fragile and so messed up that we won't get home without trials. Remember that when you're tempted to doubt God when you are suffering. Remember that. These things are pushing you toward home through the very ache we experience in them. Notice the so that at the beginning of verse seven, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is something that is being guarded by God, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is necessary that we're grieved by various trials so that our faith can be tested Tested faith is enduring faith. But since we're being guarded through faith, our testing is for us. It's not against us. It's not a fail or pass kind of test. It's, I want you to know what I'm guarding in you is real and will be kept. And the only way that happens is if you feel the weight of loss here. You see, God doesn't look at us as that 70 to 90 year blip. He looks at us as an eternal soul. Or I should say, an immortal soul. Romans 5, Paul teaches that suffering actually produces endurance. It doesn't hinder it. You see, that that weight that you feel when you suffer, when you suffer significantly, that weight you feel like you're just going to bottom out and give up and you don't know where to turn... That That is just God sharpening you to push through. He's sharpening the blade, and you're pushing through. It just doesn't feel like it all the time. But we don't look to what is seen and felt. We can't. Tested faith. A battle-weary saint's heart for God is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. So just I don't have this in my notes, but it just occurred to me, younger people, and we'll we'll say my age and below (laughs) Value the suffering of the older saints in our church. Value it. Learn it. Become friends. Hear it. Here, not that those of you who are young, maybe you've suffered much more than an older person has. I, I don't mean to imply otherwise. I'm simply saying, sit down with people and hear of their suffering because you're going to hear their faith, and it's going to pull you along. It's going to pull you along. We need each other. We actually need each other. It's like we do everything to, to make sure we're never together. You know that's a bummer we just separate by age and i understand the organization i'm not speaking out against anything i'm just saying like we, we, we just it's like we plan to never be together and we just we're just losing so much eventually all the old creation will pass away you and i will not That's why our faith is more precious even than gold because those whom God guards through faith will endure to the very end and live forever. And because it is only by God's guarding grace that we will endure to the end, this faith, this tried and tested and battered faith will not be a bucket of garbage in the end that has no value. It will result, all of that will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are exiles because the ache we endure through glorifies the source of our endurance. Jesus will one day call us good and faithful servants. And it's the revelation of Jesus Christ that we're moving towards then. That goes with the end of verse 5. The salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time is the final appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ where He ends all of the suffering, all of the struggle, all of the sin. All of the rebellion. That is our moment, beloved. That's when we get home. That's when we exhale. And beloved, not before. Not before. And if you try, if we try to exhale now, we'll suffocate because the world doesn't have any air. A good verse eight. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. We love Him even though we have not yet seen Him. Right? We do not see, yet we love and believe and rejoice. That's a composite of faith for the elect exile. Loving, believing, rejoicing. And we rejoice, the text says, with joy that is inexpressible. You rejoice, it's an action, with joy that is inexpressible. Because the full experience of it is impossible until we see Him face to face. Right now we're working with a down payment of joy, not the full thing. Right now, we love and believe and rejoice with joy that can't be fully tasted. It, it can't be fully tasted, which means, among other things, there's no reason you and I should think that if we're a Christian, we should always have a smile on our face to show that we're genuine and really believing. How can that be in light of the text? The Bible says the joy that we have can't be expressed. Right? It 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 can't be seen. It's literally inexpressible. So, what's the weight we're putting on each other all the time? You got to smile. No, I don't have to smile. And what would smiling show anyway? It's inexpressible. It, it's better than yeah. I got it. I'm good. I'm happy. I'm good. It's great. Right? Just just you, your life is crushing you, but you're a Christian. So no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. One of my kids, I'm not going to say their name, I love her so much, but this precious little girl, you, if you say to her, like we're going to go to dinner somewhere and she's a little picky about her food and you say, hey babe, how about we go here, is that alright? It's fine! It's fine! Dad, what? It's fine! Like, you're going to die if we go there, aren't you? You know, that's, <laughs> that's not the goal of Christianity, to look fine. Oh, man. We start Job tonight. I, I hope you come. I hope you come. But the goal is not to look fine. The, the, this, the world is so heavy. That's just the reality. And life is so heavy that Paul says, yeah, your joy, it's there. And it's full of glory because it comes from Christ, but it's inexpressible. Now, it will one day be opened and let out. But right now, It's inexpressible. God doesn't ask you to paint something fake on your face. Our joy is there, but it's only in seed form. It's filled with glory because its object is the risen and glorified Christ. That's why it's filled with glory. It might not be fully expressible, but it's it's not deficient, and it isn't displeasing to God that you can't express it. It's designed to be inexpressible. The seed in my heart means the inheritance is mine. Like my last, my name being Antonio Philip Romano with my certain social security number will release one day my dad's will to me, right? My name is what gets me that. that this, the seed that is there that God has placed in me by his mercy means that I will receive my inheritance. Not anything I do. Because he lives, my joy is full of glory now because he lives my joy isn't full only if I feel happy the, the world is too hard for that the, the therapy, philosophy, the right treatments the right, um, you know can, can put a smile on your face God does something better for us than what the world can do for us and, and, and we've got to understand that it doesn't mean if you're always happy that you're faking it doesn't mean that either You know, it doesn't mean that at all. We're simply saying this joy that the text is describing, it's inexpressible. It's something way deeper than something on the surface. Our joy is an inexpressible foretaste of what is coming. Sometimes all we'll be able to express is our pain from these trials. But God's love doesn't waver. Look, Look to verse 9 in light of 8. We're almost there. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith. You see that? Obtaining, presently, the outcome of your faith. The salvation of your soul. So this loving and believing and rejoicing also means that we are now obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Notice how that works. It is the life of faith that causes us to obtain our salvation, our inheritance. As we struggle, while He is invisible, loving, believing, rejoicing in various trials, we are in that because that seed is planted there by God, guarded by God. We are in that obtaining our salvation. What one day grows out of us is going to look like the seed that is in us now. It will happen. It is ours now, even though we don't yet possess it in fullness. And notice also, it is ultimately our souls that will be saved, beloved. These bodies will decay. As you experience in your physical body the slow decay of time, there is a soul in you that one day will shine brighter than the sun. And that cannot be taken away. That's guarded by God through faith. We groan to put these bodies off, Paul is right, but not to be unclothed. We're not groaning to not have a body, we're groaning to have a real body. To be finely clothed, actually clothed, with a resurrection body forever. All this fuels our living hope, it is our oxygen here below, where there is no air for our soul we're groaning or we're groping until we take hold of his hands and his feet and put our hands in his side you see the resurrection body it will be you it'll just be a different you jesus is the prototype of that he still had holes in his hands one day beloved you and i will feel those hands we'll take hold of them and i feel like somehow in his amazing omnipotent blazing glory The sun will make every single one of us feel like we're the only one there. Believer, do not give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. He will appear, beloved. He will come. The heartbeat of those below beats with hope in the midst of trials. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Displaced now, but... Traveling toward home. Let me close by reading just so you can get a picture as we head into 1 Peter. Listen, the the theme of 1 Peter is unquestionable. Listen to this. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. We read it. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. 2.19, for this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. 3.14, 3.14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. 4.12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And then 4.19, which I think is Peter's theme, his summary of the whole letter. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. And then 5.10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You! First, Peter is about the fact that as sojourners and exiles here, we suffer. So Peter reminds us of God's promise. And he starts with the gospel in heaven. He carries those of us here below up to 30,000 feet and shows us what's coming. Suffering is real, but it is brief when it's put against the backdrop of the future. Trials will not be able to wear out an imperishable inheritance. So rise up in your heart, saints. Rise up. Bless the God and Father of your Lord Jesus Christ. The deeper down you go, the closer you get to the anchor. Did you know that? Pull on it. Pull on it. It won't move. Fixed in the depths of God's great power and mercy. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're here this morning. You don't know Him. That's what we're inviting you to. Come to Him. Test Him. See that He is good. Come to Him. Taste and see. Peter was there the night that Jesus' sweat became drops of blood. He was there. He was also there the morning the tomb was empty. And he was also there... When they stood on the hill and watched him go back up into heaven with their own eyes. Peter knows what he is talking about. He knows what's coming. And he knows what is now. And he writes to us like he wrote to them through the Holy Spirit. Trials can be so brutal they make you feel like God has forgotten you. Or like he didn't care in the first place. Of course we don't understand them though. We can't see everything. Everything. But we don't look to what is seen. So press in to God through His word and prayer. And when you get shaken, you go back. Go back to these things. Don't run away because you can't make sense of it. Beloved, we're in His hands. We're in His hands. God's purposes for us include various trials. God loves us. He isn't being cruel to us. He's making us fit for the kingdom. We need set free from this world. We need to know that he ordains our exilic lives with infinite love and mercy. Let's pray. June is going to come. After I'm praying, I'll be here. We'll sing one last song together. If you've believed in the Lord Jesus as we've been talking, please come down. Tell us about it. If you want to believe but you don't know where to start, come down. If the weight of the world is too much and you need to know that Jesus holds fast, come down. We'll pray together. Father, I thank you for this time you've given to us this afternoon, I guess this morning. Lord, I pray that you would be with us now as we in our hearts prepare to respond to your word, Father, by grace through faith. Lord, would you watch over us? May we think deeply about the truth of your word and not squander it or take it lightly. But Lord, might we know that we are held by a God who is bringing us through trials to refine us for home. The home is so great that we need to be made to fit there, and that's what Jesus has done for us. So Father, I pray we would all trust in him, and in his name we pray, amen.